welcome to a very special edition of White Wine Question Time, which sees us look back and revisit some of the incredible guests we've had on the show from the last 12 months. And we're going to kick off back in January 2021, when, let's face it, things were pretty miserable. But there was always one person I could count on to brighten the mood on even the darkest of days. It's all-round top bloke Ben Shepherd sharing with us some of his biggest pinch-me moments. Johnny Wilkes and Robbie Williams set up Soccer Aid in 2006 was the first year. And I remember Johnny calling me saying, look, we're going to do this football match at Old Trafford. Um, we're going to get all the England greats playing. We're going to get all these World Cup, World greats playing as well. We want some celebs to play. And Pierluigi Colina is going to referee it, who at the time was the internationally renowned referee with these mad eyes. And, and uh Oh, and Maradona's going to play as well. And I was like, you what? I mean, like, yeah, I can hear, I can hear you saying Shearer and Sheringham and all that. That was enough for me. Tony Adams, David Seaman, brilliant. Diego Maradona. And I was like, you're absolutely joking me. How, what, how, does that, how do you even do that? How, how do you even phone Diego Maradona? Anyway, it happened. We played football against him and he was, he was extraordinary. There's this brilliant moment. And I still, whenever I see, I don't see Robbie very much because he's in LA a lot. Um, but whenever we do catch up, we always share this moment because that first game, um, Robbie was playing left back and he started the match that day and I'm playing sort of alongside him and we're running back towards our goal. And, and I genuinely said to him out loud, I shouted at him, Rob, Rob, Maradona, left shoulder. Like, <laughs> like, and it was like, and he looked at me and I looked at him and this moment of clarity where we were just like, we just burst out laughing because... It was like when we were kids in the park and it was like, well, I'll be Gaza, you be Maradona and you're playing three Aww. in and you're playing Wembley. But we were playing in front of 70,000 people at Old Trafford and it was the Maradona. It wasn't It wasn't my mate Nick pretending to be Maradona. It was Maradona. Aww. And then it was even more surreal because, of course, it was Robbie Williams as well, who's a globally renowned pop star too. As you know, Robbie, very down-to-earth, normal guy, loves his football. Lovely, yeah. We still laugh about that now and that you're absolutely right. And it was... It was lovely to reminisce and re- sort of think about those memories because I'm not sure I do this often enough. Like, are you think, you know, if I had to put my life out, like, like on a buffet table, what would those moments look like? Yeah. Like, what's on my yeah. life buffet? Oh, um, that's a lovely way of thinking about it. What would you take a nibble out again? I think there's been some amazing moments, Kat. I've been very, very lucky along the way. Uh, things like I was the first European journalist to broadcast live from the Taj Mahal. Wow. Um, yeah. this was when I was at GMTV and we flew around the world in a week. We were in a different country every day. And we started in Agra in um, India at the Taj Mahal. And then we went to Dubai. We went to Athens. We went to Tokyo and we ended up at Ayers Rock. Not necessarily in that order. We definitely ended up in Ayers Rock. The ones in the middle might be a bit confused. But I had, a day, <laughs> I had less than a day in each of those countries but we broadcast live from the Taj Mahal which had never been done before and India is a fascinating country I mean just it's a it's sensory overload on every level from the smells to the sights to the emotions to the to the look of the place and um, I interviewed the proprietor of the Taj Mahal at the time which I took great pleasure in using his name as often as possible because his name was Mr Dickshit um <laughs> You're so puerile. I know, I am. You can't, can't take the Essex boy out of me ever. And uh, so Mr. Dickett was, I mean, we'd, we'd, and we'd done this big thing about how 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 they'd, they'd, they'd scanned all of our equipment and they were very nervous about terrorist attacks. So you can't take any phones in or whatever. We got special dispensation to use the cameras. And I'm interviewing Mr. Dickshit 
overlooking the Taj Mahal. It's beautiful. And, and I've talked about, you know, no one comes in with a phone. It's all really secure and tight. And they're very nervous. And while we're live, his phone started ringing in his pocket. <laughs> and I just said, and he wouldn't pick it up. And I'm like, do you want to answer that? And I said, have you got any phones in the UK? He said, yes, yes, I have lots of friends in the UK. I think they might be on the phone to tell you that they're watching on television. <laughs> but the, the, our satellite truck, so you have a satellite truck, and that was just outside the Taj Mahal, and it was parked in what was an area where they just put all the rubbish and all the waste. And there was a couple of donkeys around the satellite truck just munching their way through the, the waste. And the cable from the satellite truck went up and over the wall of the Taj Mahal, and you could see it sparking and flashing as they sort of tied it, it was just from a from a from a broadcasting perspective. I mean, it was a real treat to be there, but to broadcast live mm, from there massive was, was was something that that I will always remember. Um, I've had a, quite a few sporting experiences as well uh, that I, I I sort of was I well I did the the I hosted the sort of celebratory parade for the Olympic team in 2012 um with Helen Skelton and we we did that right outside Buckingham Palace so they did the parade all through through London and and then they came past us and and actually 2012 and the Olympics was I oh, mean lots mega. People, lots of people we were good we were good for once we as a nation we were great well we weren't just good as a nation but the country was incredible the host nation as well everybody yeah. thought that London was going to be a nightmare and it was an mm. absolute dream everybody sort of listened the Olympic lanes worked and I had the best job I'll ever have Kate which was I was every day in the Olympic Stadium hosting the athletics. So before the athletic session started and then after it finished, I would do a little bit of chat for the crowd in the stadium with guests that we had come along. So I was there for every single session before and afterwards. And it wasn't broadcast anywhere. It was only for the people in the stadium. So the 80,000 people in the stadium. And one of the reasons they'd done it was because they wanted they didn't want suddenly it to finish and everybody to flood all the stations. So they thought if we yes. put a little bit of presentation afterwards, then a few people might stay. Um, like a holding but, me- mechanism. That's great. Exactly. But, how, yeah. but how special to be able to, because uh, I know what that would have meant to you. You are oh, the wow. ultimate sport, Billy. You Can love all sports, don't you? It, any and every sport. And to be at the heart that summer, the, the, the centre of the world felt like it was the Olympics in London. And we were there and I was there with friends. JJ was with me, my makeup artist, who you oh, know. Justin Jenkins. And Phil had done the styling and uh, Toby Baker was directing it. So Toby, the, the emperor was Love there. Love Toby you know. Baker. James Longman, who set it all up. Oh, yes. James was there. So all these guys had worked with Kate and I on X Factor many years ago, the X Factor. And they had- Good they, people. So we had an amazing group of people, but we were there every single night for every single moment. And it was such a privilege. It, and we had these, we had access all areas passes. We had, it was just like gold dust. Um, and the last night, and I still look at this picture now, and I know Mo Farah quite well now um, from Soccer Aid and various other things. But on the last night, Mo was awarded his last medal. So everyone had gone and there's a few people still, there's tens of thousands of people still there. And we're interviewing a few people and Mo had just had his medal. So I go over to interview Mo in the crowd and this has never been broadcast, which is what's really special. And I'm chatting to Mo. Mo's wife, Tanya, was there with his eldest daughter. And we're just talking about the Olympics, what it's been like. And the crowd were loving it because Mo was just saying thanks to everybody. And, 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 then, and then in my year, um, James or Toby says, uh, Usain Bolt's out back and we want you to bring him out. But security is saying they don't want it because they think it will go crazy. 
So what, because, you know, we can get talked to while we're interviewing people. Yes. And, and yeah. James like, Ben, do you think we should do it? Do you think we should do it? And I've gone, absolutely. And they said, we've got to be quick though, because security going to stop him if he tries to come out. So you've got to make sure. So, so <laughs> you engineer this thing where I said, I said to the crowd, the tens of thousands are still there. Right. There's one other person who I think you'd all like to hear from. Would you like one last interviewee tonight before we let everybody go and we let Mo go? And everyone's going, yeah. Okay. Put your hands together, ladies and gentlemen. The one and only Usain Bolt. So Usain came, came out, right? Usain and Mo were good mates anyway. And I interview, I've got a picture of me interviewing Usain and Mo Farah together on the last night of the Olympics. And we had this great chat where they're laughing with each other. And it was just such an amazing celebration. It was a spine tingling moment. You know, they were just having a lot of banter. And then I said, right, okay, one last thing then, gents. We've got to get a photo for everybody because all the media are here. They want to have a photo. Why don't we come over here? And you know the famous photo, Kate, of Usain doing the Mobot and yeah. Mo doing uh, the lightning bolt. I set that up. I said, right, boys, come over here. Why don't you go there? You, and I set all of this up and I said, there you go. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, the faces of the Olympics 2012, Mo Farah and Usain Bolt. And the crowd were going crazy. That picture was then global the next day. That wouldn't have happened, Kate Thornton, had I not gone, come on, let's get Mo, let's get Usain Bolt. Do you know out. what? That's, that is mega. And I know that would have meant the world to you. Keeping with the theme of unexpected opportunities, I had the pleasure of a very late night visit on a Monday night, no less, from Ted Lasso's Hannah Waddingham here in my house to record this next episode after, frankly, technology had defeated us. So being the superstar that she is, she jumped in a cab. I knocked up a curry. We popped open a bottle of wine and she shared some brilliant insights into how she landed herself a role on the most Emmy Award nominated freshman comedy of all time. In fact, this was just days before she boarded a plane to LA where she went on to win her very first Emmy for Best Supporting Actress. I was so thrilled when I read that Jason had gone out on a limb to get you your role in Ted Lasso. Um, I know that they'd seen other people for the role and he liked you and had to kind of convince Apple, you know, them who are, let's call it for what it is, a big Hollywood studio now, and convince them that you don't need a marquee name for this this role. You need the right person for this role. And I've got her. And he really yeah. went out on a limb for you. He wasn't, he? he wasn't having any of it. He was... Um... He just said that when he and I met, I was I was called out to LA for a chemistry read with him. And I just thought, oh, well, this will go to, as I call, one of the famouses. And, <laughs> and it was really good. Them? Yeah, the famouses. <laughs> the famous. Oh, it's the famouses. Famouses. You're, you're um, one of them now. I've been, no, but you know me. I'm ne that's never going to wash with me. I'm just, no. For me, I'm a jobbing actress to a greater or lesser extent, and that's it, and that's fine for me. Because I think I feel like if I let anything else, if I let any la-di-da stuff in, I feel like the quality of my work will suffer, and that's the honest truth. So, no, that not for me. Not for me, the whole the whole famousy thing, celebrity thing, is what I say to that. Um, but I went over for this um, chemistry read with him. And we just immediately got on like a house on fire on a very low key, you know, hello, hello, what are we doing? Oh, we're doing this. Have they told you much about it? And I was like, no. And he went, what, we've, we've just sent you the scenes? I was like, yeah, just the Rebecca scenes. They had no clue about uh, the Rupert character, no clue about what she and Ted would mean to each other, no clue about Keely. And I think just on a very basic level, Jason and I just got on. And 
he obviously liked what I did. And then when I came home, I didn't hear anything for ages. And I just thought, okay, well, that was that. I know I couldn't have done any better with the material. I felt the character really ripple through my bloodstream. And I thought, okay, well, they've gone for a famouser. And that's that's fine. Um, but apparently, no, he had just gone. I, I knew it was her when she walked in the room. And why why do you need to go for someone else when she is how I imagined her sounding, sounding, how I imagined her looking. Wow. Done. And he didn't care that I was taller than him in heels either, if you notice. I hadn't, do you know what? I hadn't noticed. He doesn't care. And when the costume designer said, look, I, Hannah would like to, because I, a part of it for me was, even though I didn't want her to apologize for her height, I wanted her to also use it as a tool to pretend that she's stronger than she is. Yeah, which she does. Yeah. So I she makes like, herself big, doesn't she? Yeah, she makes yeah. herself big. So I yeah. want her in a, like a four-inch heel, even though I'm 5'11 in my stocking feet. So that makes me like 6'2", nearly 6'3", which is taller yeah. than him. And he was like, let her wear what she wants. I love high heels. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so that was, that was that. He was totally, totally cool with it and has continued like that. And if you look at the episodes he shines the light all over the place away from himself he really does actually He's, yeah he really and, does and he 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 gives us a really lovable leading man uh, you know there's there's something almost tom hanks about the way he delivers that role mm. that ability to be just so endearing and charming but he he gives that to all of his characters it's a really clever piece ted lasso and i understand entirely why millions of people around the world are gobbling it up Now, sticking with the uh, Ted Lasso theme, let's revisit Hannah's co-star, comedian, author and actress Ellie Taylor, who told us she was floored, in fact, stunned by the success of Ted Lasso, mainly because, well, she'd never watched a single episode of it. Uh, How did you end up on Ted Lasso? Well, it was just one of those millions of auditions that I ended up going for and I, I... I, I, can, I can actually remember it because I was, a, I was a bit pissed off because it was a very long way across London. And I was like, well, here we go. I'm going to waste half a day, traipsing into the arse end of nowhere to do something and then not get the job, like always, because obviously with acting, you just get a million no's. Um, yeah. And uh, went along and did it. And then, yes, got, got a yes. And that was a bit, uh, was a bit, what? Sorry, what? So that was lovely. Um, and then it all, you know, had no idea what it was. No one did. Um, turned up to film my scenes and I still didn't really have a handle on exactly what the show was and I'd only ever sort of seen you know I'd sort of seen my stuff I didn't know what anything else was going on in the series so um when it came out on Apple again it was you know no one knew what it was what it was about and I I didn't I wasn't sure if I'd done that great so I thought I just I won't mention it I won't tell anyone that I'm in it it's fine just let it go under the radar and then everyone's, everyone started watching it and everyone was talking about it. And then I was like, well, I should probably get Apple TV to have a look at this thing. Um, so, <laughs> you not even no, watched, I'd watched it. it. And then I uh, saw it and was like, oh, it's really good. Oh, it's really good. And I was like, oh, well, I saw my scenes and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm okay. Okay, this is good. This is okay. Um, You're and, really good. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really chuffed with it. And it's just, yeah, it's just such a fun character to get to play. Um, and it's such a lovely cast. And Hannah is one of the best people I've ever met in my life. And I, that sounds like I'm exaggerating and being a, like a media lovey. But she like, I think I'm in love with her. I th- honestly think she's like one of the best people in the world. She's she genuinely is amazing. She? She's amazing. I love her. 
now to one of my favourite guests, not just from the last year, but of all time. Michelle Visage, famed for her candour and no-holds-barred approach to life, the drag race judge did not disappoint. Here she is, dialing in from her home in Los Angeles. You've got two really seminal and important relationships in your, your life, male relationships, one with your husband, David, and the other one with RuPaul. Mm-hmm. And they both spanned decades which is extraordinary and a real credit this speaks so highly of you but I wondered across the years what is what is it you've needed from those relationships and how have those needs changed as you've grown together Hmm, good question so I have always been very independent and as an adopted child I think we are born with different mindsets right um I think, you know, all the years of therapy and, you know, it's a very American thing, but all the years of therapy. um, Great thing. I think it's a great thing. Our needs um, change, they grow, um, they take twists and turns. So for me, I've always been independent. So I've never leaned really on anybody. And that's a detriment. I think it's always Mm -hmm. good to have somebody to lean on. And I don't, you know, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Lola, said to me, I have never seen you cry. And it's something I struggle with. I feel like Cameron Diaz in the holiday, but it's true. Yeah, I'm just, you're trying to squeeze one out. Yeah. yeah I'm just, yeah. <laughs> the, the weirdest things well me up, like um, things with animals and, uh, uh, you know, like I remember watching my children like in a holiday performance at school where they're playing like a snowflake and that stuff makes me tear up, gets me very emotional, um, you know watching somebody reach their dreams on Ireland's Got Talent or X Factor, whatever it is, you know, that stuff, the Queens on Drag Race, that makes me well up. But oddly, I'm not, I'm just not a crier. My husband, we're watching Gavin and Stacey last night because my husband never seen it. He is crying at the wedding. You know what I mean? Um, So he's just very different. (laughs) And you're just sat there going, what? I don't, I don't just, I don't do it. So it has to be a very. I love real... that you're making him watch Gavin and Stacey. That's brilliant. He found it on his own, believe it or not. He said, "Did you really? ever watch this?" And I was like, "Yeah, have I ever watched this?" I'm basically British, darling. Um, <laughs> and Ruth Jones is a personal hero because I'm a huge Nighty Night and Julia Davis psycho fan. But anyway, um, for me, so for me, I never leaned on people um, that way. But my husband has always been there for me because he knows when to back off. He knows when I need him. He knows if I need him, he'll be there. Like it's a pretty amazing relationship. He is the most incredible man I've ever met. He is, um, he doesn't take my poop. He is, um, he understands me. He supports me. He lets me be where I have to be. He's done everything for me, which is amazing. Um, he's a pretty special guy. So I only hope that my daughter, you know, finds both of my daughters find love like uh, he gives to us. So, so when when you first met David, you were really quite young. Both of you really young, and you seem to have kind of you connected at that time. But then, what blows my mind is how varied and colourful a life you've both lived. But it seems to have been in sync, and that's the challenge, right? Is is staying in tune with one another. I think you have to know that life will change. And I think you have to know that people will change. And sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't, and that's okay. And I think people are too um, stuck on the lore of marriage is forever and you can't change and 
you have to stay together even though you don't love each other. And I think that that's a disservice to humanity and to yourself. And I think Mm -hmm. we deserve better than that. But David and I have, listen, it's not all been Skittles and rainbows. You know, we've had our moments of, um, you know, difficulty and, and you just, you get through it if it's worth it to you. And if it's not worth it, which again is fine, because sometimes you sit back and you go, this isn't worth all of this. This isn't mm. worth the drama, the stress, the, you know, not sleeping. And sometimes it's just not worth it. And that's okay. Cause you'd be better off alone or better off with somebody else, whatever the situation is in our situation, we've been able to work through the tough times and uh, get through it. And there's been way more than one and that's fine. From one strong lady to another now. Uh, Earlier this year, we had the all-singing, all-dancing Sophie Ellis-Bexter on the show. And she shared with us a brilliant story about a rather angry email she was very proud of sending that slightly got lost in translation when she put somebody on copy she hadn't intended to. It sounds like I've been stalking you and I haven't, I promise. Uh, An Instagram post that you put up in 2016, which was a picture of you and Richard out on a night out seven months after you'd had Jesse, who's your fourth child, right? Yep, yep. So you put up, um, and this was... I thought I was pregnant. Yes. Right. So yes. you'd put up, when Richard and I went out the other night, I wore a quite, quite a tight frock. I considered wearing stupid underwear to make me look trimmer, but decided not to as A, I wanted to be comfy and B, I didn't mind the shape I'm in. Later that evening, a lady thought I was pregnant. Obviously not thrilling, but just to say, I don't mind that seven months after a baby that happened. This is what it looks like when you've had a baby sometimes, not to pass any judgment on those mums who go back to their former shape quicker. I've had four kids. I don't have a flat tummy. That is okay. Now, I read that and just was like, air pump you know air punching you and well not punching you you know high-fiving <laughs> wouldn't punch you um so bravo first of all secondly you look bloody amazing in that picture and third of all thank you because that's a really necessary but difficult public conversation and I wondered why you felt compelled to, to share it but also when else you've had to speak up on something that's a bit awkward a bit difficult but also a bit necessary um well I suppose um I think I think it happens a lot to women and I think yeah look, different levels of it funnily enough I've actually I've just been finishing a book at the moment and one of the chapters is called are you pregnant because I sort of wrote about times when people have thought that I'm pregnant and I'm not and there's sort of two strands to it really I think the one where it's like just someone making a bit of a mistake socially I think that's totally understandable and I think we've got to be really forgiving with ourselves about all that and you know I suppose I mean I've never had a flat stomach and obviously it's never great if someone thinks you're expecting a child when you're not but I think also I've just kind of thought you know what I'm a woman that's a shape that we tend to gravitate towards anyway and it's it's fine like just be okay with that but then there's also the other side of it which is when people if you're in the public eye or, or it's more scrutiny, you know, they, they're like, Oh, I think they're having a baby. And then they want to know the answer just Mm. because they have a hunch about it. And I think that's really not okay. Cause I think there's some things that are very private and it came out of, um, last year when I did a video for crying at the discotheque, um, someone, I won't name him, but uh, a guy that I work with saw the, the, some of the footage and he phoned me up and he said, 
I just wondered if you have big news. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he went, have you got big news? And I was like, are you asking me if I'm pregnant? He said, yes. I was like, no. And he said, that's what I thought. But then afterwards, I was so angry. I was like, if I wear a bloody sequin catsuit and for whatever reason, I don't tell you I'm pregnant either because I'm not, I am and I'm not ready to say, or I have been recently and I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Then don't bloody ask me. And I just said, you'll never know what it's like to have to confirm or deny if you're expecting a child just because someone's had a look at you and has a hunch you might be and wants to know if they're right. Like, yeah, pure, pure nosiness. But also, you know, they don't really understand that, you know, maybe you had been carrying a child at that time. Maybe that child hadn't carried full term. Maybe yeah. that's something that you're dealing with. You know, yeah. you must always be mindful of what people might be going yeah. through. That's why I say, yeah, like if I just hadn't been pregnant and then I wasn't anymore, like yeah. for whatever reason, it's private. But yeah. But the thing that was really embarrassing, so I'd written this email back to him. Did you? So I'd got really like, I've written this flipping awesome email. I was like, nailed it. But I told Richard and I told my mum about it. I put them on blind copy uh, because I thought they'd get a kick out of how brilliantly articulate I'd been. <laughs> <laughs> but then he replied saying, oh, I'm so sorry. And when he replied, he'd copied my mum and Richard in. Oh. And I realised that I didn't put them on blind copy. <laughs> <laughs> With my mum and my husband. We've made me feel like really empowered to like complete dingbat. And I bet as well, because it's your mum, if he's anything like our age, he would have been like, shit, it's Janet Ellis from Blue Peter. <laughs> you know what? Too right. He deserved to be humiliated. I'm he sorry. did. When you talk about the importance of those conversations and sending that email, for example, did you feel, I mean, I love the fact that you felt empowered. Did you get a bit of a sweaty upper lip writing it? Were you a bit like, should I, shouldn't I? Do you, or, or are you fearless yeah. in those moments? No, I was really, I knew it was wrong. And I felt like we can't have this happen again, actually. And there's so many ways to handle it that weren't that. And I literally closed it with like, even my own mother wouldn't ask me if I'm having a baby by saying, have you got big news? Like, it's not cool, man. It's not cool. I was now, nah, I was very angry. <laughs> now, earlier this year, despite the many frustrations and restrictions of life in a pandemic, we managed to realise a long-term ambition and stage White Wine Question Time live in the West End of London, no less. Now, some of you may have even come along to listen to the first record. And if you did, thank you so much. But for those who didn't, I wanted to share some of my favourite moments. Uh, our first guest was Strictly Judge Craig Revel Hallwood, talking about a life that has managed to fill three autobiographies and all with good reason. I know you'll see the humour in this and I really hope that you do. I want you to imagine that you've gone off to the dance floor in the sky, that you've popped your dancing clogs and the BBC are about to play on the news at 10, your obituary. I want you to go back to your early days as a sound recordist, as a cameraman, as somebody that's compiled shows, and I want you to tell me what you're going to put in your obituary so people see you and remember you as you would like to be remembered. Yeah, I don't think... what. What would I want to say about myself that people don't already know from News of the World or the many, many autobiographies I've done? Yes, well, there is that. But, I might you know... put the excess biographies on top of the grave and people can just put a donation for flowers in there. 
three autobiographies so far, so you've not been afraid to kind of put your life out there. But I just wondered if you had to contain it, what would be the standout moments? Would it be the leaving Australia? Would it be the arrival in Paris? Would it be the the mysterious Mr. X? Would it be the oh, you know the the jobs in the West End, the, the the gig on Strictly, falling out with Cameron Macintosh? I mean, am I going there or what? Yeah, there's a lot, isn't there? Yeah. The first one I had to write. Because News of the World were printing absolute rubbish about me. And I thought, what am I going to do? You know, I have all these skeletons or so-called skeletons. I call it life yes, in the closet that, that yeah. is normal for most people. Okay, yeah, the, you know, sugar daddy, the, the, the rent boy thing, the whole, you know, everything. <laughs> you know, the shotgun film, my father, trying to kill my mother, going to prison, all of that stuff. I mean, I'm trying to wrap this up in a very short and swift way. But a lot of stuff happens to people. A lot of stuff, you know, and and there's a lot of secrets lot, and though. lies it, in everybody's lives. That's course. one of my favorite films as secrets well. Secrets and like, lies. Yeah, I love that because that's actual real life, you know, mm. and that's where real stories come from, true stories that I make uh, theater out of, that I make dance routines out of, that I use for inspiration. And my life is no different to anyone else's in this room. We're all born equally mm. and we all just choose different paths and loads of stuff happens to all of us, you know, but a lot of people don't go spouting off about it and try and make money out of it like I did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean no, that mean in, in, in a way, way that I had to yeah, explain myself. I had to explain myself in the first book and then people were interested enough for me to write a second and third. And then on my father's death, I decided um, to just finish them at his death. And then I thought, right. That was a very important full stop for you, though. Well, your dad, has your, to your be. relationship with your dad was very difficult, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, my father was an alcoholic and died subsequently of alcohol poisoning. We were hoping it wasn't that. But he actually, in fact, you know, drank himself to death. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was like one of those horrible things where you can go on about it, you know, and he... It was just awful, like living with him and living with alcoholism and abuse, you know, all of us, because I've got a family of five kids and um, three sisters and I've got a little brother. And we were, it was just awful. Family life was terrible. Mm. And that's why I went to dancing, because I could get away. I could just look into the mirror and escape and not even really see me, just see lines, see how I was doing. And I just felt like I could fly away you know, in those moments. And when I heard music, I just wanted to dance, to get away from it, to escape family life. And that's the real reason I started dancing. Yes, I loved Bonnie Langford and all of that and Cats. And, you know, yes, I loved all of that. But it was, um, my real escape was there, just listening to the music and listening and being able to move to it and not having to use words, not having to use song, Nothing, just the expression of your body. So that was one of two live shows that we staged at the Leicester Square Theatre in 2021. The second featured the cast of Dunbreedin, the first drama to be shot in lockdown that followed six friends living in Brighton who were all going through the menopause. It was written and created by the actress Julie Graham, who also starred in the show alongside five fabulous actresses who also happened to be her friends. So let's cross back to the stage now to listen in on Julie with castmates Denise Welsh, Alison Newman, Tracy Ann Oberman, Angela Griffin and Tamsin Outhwaite. 
in, in again in our industry, it's like that wonderful sketch that um, Tina Fey did, Last Fuckable Day, and the idea yeah. is that you get past thirty-five and as an actress or forty, and then when nobody wants to particularly fuck you anymore, that's it. You just go off into the sunset and come back as Driving Miss Daisy. So, um, <laughs> but what I Driving Miss Daisy. So, but what I think this did so brilliantly is that and not just this group of women. I you know I know so many the sexiest women I know are women over 45, 50 because they know themselves, they own themselves, and they the look amazing. Well. Totally cool. They're the ones that you want to go up to at the party. And I don't think I'd seen a script where women were shown as being sexual, sexy, attractive, Funny. happy, living, wanting it all, as it was in this script. And I think that reflects life much more. Who wants to be 20? Oh, my God. No. 20 is... Ugh. Also, I think, you know, it's all fine as being here and we're, we're present in the world, but if you, it's not reflected on TV and in film and in books and in art, then you are, to a certain extent, invisible yeah. and you're not represented. And I am fucking sick of it. You can't... It's that's so <laughs> true. really you can't, am. You can't be what you can't see. Yeah, and if you're not exactly. seeing that representation yeah. of you going, you, you, you're still sexual, you're still wanted, you're still creative, you're still yeah. thriving... Funny. And funny and and, and very alive. funny. If you're, yeah, if you're and, not seeing it, and and also you're not just supporting. You're leading. Yes. You're a leading yes. fucking character yes. who is leading your fucking life. Yes. yes. <laughs> but also all the all these brilliant actresses on stage should be in leading roles all the time. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, we all were in our thirties. Yeah, but, yeah, but, I mean, no, but now it's well, changed. That's the point, Sam. We, you were in that's your 30s. The yes. Actually, what have you gained in the last 10 years that is anything other than valuable? But yeah. I remember. So, where's Kate. that value recognized? <clears throat> a friend of mine, um, Darren Little, writer Darren, there's two. There's Darren Litton, who wrote Benidorm, there's Darren Little. And Darren said, and I think it was about 10 years ago, and he'd written this amazing script about this whole bunch of women who go off to Marbella and it's all of the, the mums who get into the trouble at the daughter's hen night, one of those sort of things, and which of course would happen. But Darren, Darren took this to Sky and these women were sort of around 55, 60 and Sky Television said to him, we absolutely love this script. Can you make these women around 35? You know, which completely and utterly defeats the whole point of the script. But on a but on a on a serious side as well uh, with done breeding, um, because we were concentrating so much on doing it and making it and staying married <laughs> during during the process, we were forgetting about those people who were watching it. And I remember Nadia Sawala, lovely actress who I do um, loose women with. Nadia had been struggling for about eight to ten years. And she watched Dunbreeding and it made her read up more about the menopause. She put it, she got herself on HRT after eight years and she said it has transformed her life. You came together and you did something that nobody would allow you to do. So you did it yourself um, and, and you were really formidable and fantastic and feisty. And as a friend, I'm really proud of you. But as a woman, I'm very grateful to you. <laughs> And as the year came to a close, our guests just got bigger and better. Flying in from New York, I had the pleasure of spending an hour with Alan Cumming, one of our most celebrated actors whose activism and passion for civil rights has won him over 40 humanitarian awards. Here he is recalling his first trip to Hollywood. And that you're having 
this extraordinary success and so you end up you know being being flown first class to los angeles mm -hmm. you know to do three lines of adr yeah and meet people because they think you're fabulous um and so you've, there's a lot of that going on and then there's the night that it all goes horribly wrong where you board a flight that can't land where it's supposed to you and ruby wax yeah I had, to, I had to do an emergency landing in Reykjavik. Yes. It sounds like a sitcom or something, but it's, it was just that was my, that was the first time I ever went to America. And you and couldn't I, get there. I couldn't get there, and then and then it was just awful. And 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 I I remember just feeling so great and thinking this is it's all I've got it together. I know my mess, but look look at me. I'm going to Hollywood. I'm working. I'm working in Hollywood. And they're flying. They're flying me to the. And then the next, and I'm on the. I'd never been in posh class before either. So I'm in, you know, having delicious food and wine and massages. Like, massages. <laughs> those days when you could get your, a manicure on mm. on the plane. They won't let you do that now, because I guess the, what are you, you're going to stab someone. You know what I mean? But <laughs> with the, the nail file. With yeah. the nail file. Um, I used to think it was weird when they would give you a plastic knife, but a real fork. Because <laughs> I said I could just poke you in the eye with this fork. You know what I mean? Was, anyway, that's by the by. But um, and I. I was looking at the window and all of a sudden I saw like the ice flows and I thought, oh gosh, how beautiful, but we're flying rather low. And then they're like, oh, we're doing an emergency landing in Reykjavik. And Ruby was on the plane because she was going to interview Tammy Faye Baker, the big lady, you know, the religious leader yeah. lady with the big eyelashes. And she uh, was in, it was from the BBC, so she was up in economy and she was furious that I was in Posh. And then we, and then we, then we landed in, um, Portland, Maine, because they couldn't fly to LA because the pilots had not, you know, they weren't allowed to fly for that long. Anyway, it was a nightmare. And then it was like, I had that, another crazy thing where I was just like, oh, gosh, what's going to happen? I don't, I'm, but, I don't but you fly. landed and there was no mobile phone. You'd Nothing. had no itinerary with you. You no. were just banking on the fact that you, as a celebrated artist, were going to be put on a plane at Heathrow. Yeah, I just Turn thought, left, get off the other end. Somebody will take you to where you need to go. And it would all just happen. But, the, but we all, I think we just did that we in those did days. That, yeah. yeah, nobody had done. You know, you so you're in Iceland with no way of contacting the people that are not, waiting nice, for yeah, you. And then I was in Portland. I didn't even know where Portland was. <laughs> And uh, and then I and then I was just thinking, lying on my bed, trying to be all calm, like trying to be all zen about it. I think, you know, well, thinking, you know, inside my in, inner turmoil voice was like, this is it. You thought everything was great. You were going to Hollywood. You couldn't even get there. You don't know where you are. You're in the wrong hotel because Ruby went to the posh hotel and I went to the cheap hotel with the crew. And just, you know, even, you can't even do that. It's a mess. You got in the wrong bus. You're in the wrong country and the wrong date, all this. Then all of a sudden the phone rang and it was Warner Brothers. And they were like, I was like, oh, yes, I, you know, the, the, the plane got to, we had to go to Iceland and the man got, he was sick. And, and then and, and I'm coming tomorrow. And they went, don't get on the plane tomorrow. Look out the window. There's a car waiting outside. It was like a spy film. There's a car outside the window. And I was like, oh. and he said, get in it right now. In 50 minutes, you're leaving. So I got there in time. But, and so and that was actually... In a way, when I think about that little trip, it's sort of a really great sort of my life in microcosm, in a way, yeah. that everything falls apart. But actually, it comes... It falls I get, together, actually. Falls together, yeah. Falls together, but yeah. in so many ways, when I was reading the book, I thought, gosh, this is almost like your first taste of Hollywood. Mm. And you really wanted it to go so well. And it could not have gone more wrong. I mean, a guy almost dies on the flight. It's forced to, to emergency land. Yeah. You've got no way of... I mean, like... Oh, awful. <laughs> I could and feel then I went, your and shortness I took a of out. I took my card out. And I had a rental car, because they gave you a rental car. I was like, gosh, well, I better use it. <laughs> and so I was only there a few days. So I took this card out and started driving on the wrong side of the road, you know, I've never driven in America before, <laughs> on the 101, which is this crazy motorway that goes through LA, 
couldn't find it. I mean, it was, it was just at night. And no, were, no Google Maps then. You were trying nothing. to read a map, get to meetings no, on time. It was just awful. I was trying to find the centre. And you talk as well about the, the kind of endless multi-storey car parks in Los Angeles where everything looks the same and you can't find your way back to your no. car because that also looks like every other car because everyone's a, in a, a black, rental. A black Lexus, <laughs> whatever it is. And I would just go around beeping my little thing trying to see if a car's light was, was going. And I would just cry. I would sometimes be cry. I in between to, meetings. In between meetings, just crying, trying to find my car. And then the other thing I still love when I go to meetings in LA, when you finish the meeting, the person at the desk goes, do you need validage, validation? And I go, of course I do. I'm an actor. I'm very insecure. <laughs> <laughs> and I, was, and I, I did this one thing once. And they obviously mean the parking. <laughs> you mean the parking validation. Yeah. I did this thing when I was with my, I have this reproduction company, we were having these meetings. So there was a couple of us. And I did a series of videos where I'd get the person at the desk to say, do you need validation? And I would say, yes. And they go, you look really pretty today, Alan. <laughs> like, oh, your hair looks great. Or I love that outfit. And, and, they, and of course, they're all one, one of the actors, I suppose. So they did it. Of course they did. such a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alan, you were a hoot. OK, time for one last clip. And this is a story that I just love. And he tells it way better than I could. So I'm going to hand over now to Gary Barlow talking about... We call him Sir Elton John. He calls him Elton Bloody John. Do you remember the first time you met Elton? I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was at the Ivor Novello Awards. Yeah. I was in the room that day. I remember you, you coming over going, I've just met Elton John. Yeah. <laughs> he was so excited. You know what? Even I must have met him, I don't know, a hundred times over the years. I still can't get past that it's Elton John. Never. Never. I still, I still can't, even though he's, you know, look, I, know, I know him so well that he'll just come and talk about football usually. And um, I just can't get past it. It's Elton Bloody John. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. Yeah. yeah. He's amazing. When his uh, name, numbers or name comes up on your phone, how does that feel? Because um, I'm imagining he calls you. Well, you know what? I, it's funny. I'll... I'll um, he won't mind me saying this, but I did um, I did one of those crooner sessions with with him. Yeah. Um, and the crooner sessions were what you did online. Yeah, they were the online thing. So we're basically we're all in lockdown. We're all desperate for attention. <laughs> no, no one's given us any. Let's get online. We'll find it somewhere, kids. So uh, so I made a rule that if, if they're not in my address book, I'm not going to start ringing agents and record companies. If they're in my address book. I'll contact them. Some people I hadn't spoken to for five years or something, but throughout the, the 90 that we did, we did 90 in the end, I wanted to finish with Elton. So... Um, you did 90? did 90, yeah. Blimey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I called him up and I said, um, listen, I, I know you, you're probably having some home time with the, 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 kids. the kids and David, but... I've done this thing. He knew all about it. I was like, yeah, I'll do it, do it, I'll do it, you know. So um, he started this thing then where every morning, it was like 20 past half past nine. I'm guessing the kids had gone off to school or somewhere. FaceTime. <laughs> and I was like, wow, how are you doing? You know, he went, sorry, I've only just learned how to do this. So <laughs> I'm doing it to everyone. <laughs> It was every morning for about two. What do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? Oh, we'll have a thing and I'll ring you tomorrow. And after two weeks, we recorded our pieces and I said to him, I said, listen, I'm going to miss this. 
talking to you every morning. It's just the best start to anyone's day. Wow. And um, and like I say, it's always stuff, nothing to do with music. You know, how are Liverpool doing? How's Watford doing? Who are you buying next? It's all the stupid stuff. But it was a very special couple of weeks, that was. He's also incredibly funny, isn't he? Oh, he is. Yeah. Most of it you couldn't repeat, but um, but he is, he is, he's funny. He's so, if, yeah, you're right, he is. He's like a comedian, actually. You know, he's been a big, big figure for me. And I think with him, you know, he's, he's, he's just a great role model for everyone. I mean, he loves music, good God. Oh, his passion for new music oh, is, is unending, isn't it? Incredible. Yeah. He knows things I've never heard of. And you're just like, wow, how did you even find this? Um, it's kind of like your Yoda, yeah. Oh, he is. He's everyone's Yoda. That's it for White Wine Question Time this year. Thank you so much to all of you who regularly download and listen and tell your friends about us. We really do appreciate it. My huge thanks also to the 52 plus guests that we've had on the show this year and to the incredible team that work with me on the show. Richard Hatherall heads it up for Yahoo UK with Libby Knowles, Gabriella Colosurdo and Alex Sutton. Our music, as always, is provided by the brilliant Andy Bell. And I'll be back next Friday when normal business will resume. Until then, in this sort of weird interim time of Twixmas, if you've got a little bit of time on your hands and you want to extend a little bit of goodwill, it is the season of goodwill to your favourite podcast, then please do rate or review us. It truly helps other people to find and discover the show. Whatever you're doing this new year, have a good one. I'll see you next year. Until then, take care out there and thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.